Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and the changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, dictated as almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. It's a beautiful morning, high, puffy clouds, 75 degrees at about 7 a.m. as I cruise down I-20. And why do I mention the weather? Once in a while I do that because it's what friends do when they talk to each other and I view my audience as my friends. All 6,000 plus of you guys. Anyway, um, today's show is going to be another listener question show. And the reason I'm going to do that is honestly I, I didn't do anything except slack off, work in the garden a bit, drink some beer and float around in my pool over the weekend. So I didn't put any time into uh, investigating uh, any topics and I uh, didn't even do any real reading over the weekend, just really took the weekend off. So this is my fallback to answering questions. And the other reason is I think it actually makes a really great show. And I want to do more of these. And, and since it looks like it, it's still going to be maybe once or twice a month I can do the call-in shows, let me encourage you to uh, to ask questions by email that I can do this with because I'll be able to do them more often than the other type of show. Uh, the way to ask a question for a show like this, just send me an email to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Uh, for those that pronounce the differently, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. It is thesurvivalpodcast.com. And uh, put in the subject question for Jack. And I'll throw them all into one folder. It'll make it easier for me to make sure I don't miss your question. Uh, as always, though, for different methods of feedback, you can go to the blog and comment and get uh, follow-up from different episodes. You can go to the forum and post and get answers from people other than me. Uh, there's all types of ways to send me feedback. Just, if you just think I'm a jerk, you can send me an email say, Jack, you're a jerk. And I'll delete it, but uh, you'll be duly noted. Anyway, before I get into today's topic, let's do a little bit of house cleaning. Uh, number one, Wilderness Ways, Dirt Time 09 out in San Bernardino, California. I think they're taking a few more people for that. They're over the quota, but they've uh, made some steps. Uh, this is one of these things that just keeps growing, and they've gotten more guests and uh, or more uh, more speakers in since they started it out. And I think it's going to be a great time. It's 175 bucks, but it's a week-long event. I'll put a link to the forum thread where you can get in touch with Alan and see if there are any spots remaining. It's the last week in August, but again, if you want to go, I suggest you get uh, get that done quick or you're not going to lose your opportunity there. Um, next thing, if you think you get more than 25 cents worth of value per episode, consider joining the Survival Podcast Supporting Members Brigade and get exclusive content available only to members. On that note, one of the exclusive pieces of content, people have been asking for an update on my garden. Uh, we did a garden tour of all six of our beds this weekend. Uh, I'll probably get that edited together and uploaded tonight. I might get it edited today uh, and maybe not uploaded till tomorrow. The files are going to be big because of the type of video it is, I'm going to probably upload both the small 320 size and the larger 680 size, uh, just because I think you'll get more out of the larger videos, but with that said, it's going to take a long time for me to generate and upload those videos. Uh, the video production takes longer than you think, folks. Uh, it only takes me a certain amount of time to uh, edit it, but when I say generate and actually output it from Sony, it takes quite a while for those videos to be output uh, in a format that's usable to you. Uh, so every time one's generating, I have to wait to do another one, so that's why they 
become a little bit slow. Uh, last but not least, make sure you visit our advertisers. They're available in the right-hand margin of the site. Uh, today's advertiser of the day, ready-made resources. Check those guys out. They have some really cool stuff. So let's get on with the show. And uh, that was a good one. I wrapped it up in uh, on four minutes. So that's, we're getting quicker with our house cleaning. Anyway, um, the first question that, that's come in um, is actually a pretty good question. I, I don't think the person's right because it really wasn't asked as a question. It was made more as a statement. But it's a good question because it brings up some issues about bug out locations. And it was basically, why do you think you're going to be able to get to your bug out location if the shit hits the fan. In other words, if everything's blowing up all around us and we're having complete catastrophe and breakdown, the type of thing that would make a person decide to bug out and you have to get five hours by highway to your bug out location, what makes you think you're going to be able to get there? Well, it's a good point. It doesn't, and this person was basically, I'm never getting one because this is why so a bug out location doesn't make any sense. You're, you're missing the, the point that most people that have set up bug out locations have already thought of this. Okay, we, we've, we've thought about this at length before we've made a purchase of land and or a second uh, house and uh, some method of living there and staying there. And there's a couple things that mitigate that as long as you're aware of them. Number one, you have an evacuation plan. And you don't have a plan A and no plan B. You have an A, a B, a C, and a D. You have four different ways by land to get out of your property here and to your property there. You have them mapped out in advance that every single member of the family that would be accepted into that bug out location has a map of those routes and communications mediums with everybody else. So that if you happen to be split up when the decision is made to bug out, a quick phone call, a quick radio call, a quick CB call, whatever means of comm you have, and everybody's given the evac order. If somebody's near the primary residence, maybe they're picking something up, maybe they're not, but everybody knows what route to take, what rally point to, to, to rally on. Everybody's armed or able to quickly arm themselves. And there's a plan in place to do that. Number two, if you have a bug out location, you have an option that other people do not. That means you pay attention and you're always asking the question as, as you see things around you begin to heighten, is this the time to bug out? So people that would bug out properly would not bug out. And for new listeners, bug out simply means to move from one point to a, a point of, of greater safety. And a bug out location is maybe a remote property. It may just be a condo in Austin, for God's sakes. If you live in New Orleans, you're worried about hurricanes. Which will bring me to my next step. But anyway, you, you, so there is no intention. It may be the case where you have to fight your way through it, but there is no intention for most survivalists with bug out locations to bug out at the height of a shit hit the fan. It is to keep your finger on the pulse of things and go, you know what, this is either going to be a two-week vacation or a bug out. I'm not sure yet. We're pulling the plug. We're going we're gonna to fall back, and we're going to wait to see what happens because this looks bad. So the point would be to jump in advance of the, of the, the, the big catastrophe. And then the third point is, like I just, I just mentioned, your bug out location could be a condo in Austin. And you'd say, how the hell could my bug out location be a condo in Austin? Well, remember, you prepare for disasters based on threat probability. And if you live in New Orleans, Louisiana, or if you live in Brownsville, Texas, or not Brownsville, what is it, uh, uh, you know, down south of Houston in that area, down near uh, Port Lavaca, anywhere along the Texas coast, if you live on the Florida Gulf Coast, the Florida Atlantic Coast, the East Coast, all the way up into the Carolinas and Virginia, one of your biggest threat probabilities is a hurricane. 
And all you need in a bug out location in that instance is to be able to move yourself somewhere where you can be in relative comfort and yet safe from storm surge and the major impacts of the storm, even if you get some of the outer stuff that's not as generally as bad. So a bug out location is whatever the owner chooses to make of it. It could be what I have, which is a very remote location, end of a dirt road, uh, ready for just about anything that can go wrong, or it can just simply be a place far enough away that you can move there, or it might even be an agreement. And what do I mean by an agreement? I have a fairly remote property, let's say in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Let's say I have a, a, a trusted friend or family member that has a remote location in New Mexico, and we make an agreement in advance with certain provisions behind that agreement that if we ever get to a point where one area or the other is in greater threat and one person needs to bug out, we would consolidate and move into one bug out location. You want a fairly large property, for that, you want to have housing capability for that, or the person coming needs to be doing something like bringing a travel trailer, but that's another way to do it. So bug out locations are as versatile as you want to make them, uh, but the reason we think we can get there is because we have a plan to do it. We're not just going to wait until the world blows up around us and then try to get out. Um, question number two, how do I get the older podcast? Uh, I think 147 is what's 147 to uh, wherever we're at now, 205, 206 is what's showing on iTunes. It's the last 60 episodes. Uh, there's two ways to get the older podcast. One, you know that exclusive content available only to members that I talk about in the Members Support Brigade? Uh, one of those pieces of content is every podcast ever done, wrapped up in nice zip files for instant download, uh, 24 episodes per block. You download them, they're all numbered, they're all ready to go, you can drop them right into iTunes and uh, start listening from episode one if you want to. That is a benefit given to our members. We used to make that available to everybody. When I set up the member support brigade, I said i got to do something additional for those who are supporting the show at a quarter an episode, five bucks a month. So that was one of the things that I did, was put those all in nice zip files for people like that. The other way you can get it, no one locks them up or hides them from you. You can just go to the blog, the survivalpodcast.com, and start going through the archives and go through them and download them one at a time. And uh, you can do that 147 times now, I guess it is, and you'll have all the episodes individually downloaded. It's up to you, um, but uh, we don't really make any apologies for making that part of the support brigade. We think it's a uh, good benefit to those who choose to support the show with a small contribution. Um, third one wasn't really a question. It was pointed out to uh, me by one of our moderators and, and very uh, heavy contributors on the uh, forum, aptly, the uh, aptly named Heavy G. And Heavy G pointed out a thread to me and said, this is exactly what you're talking about. You really should mention it on the air and make people aware of it. And what this was is a lady that's been prepping for some time. She didn't say so, but I get the feeling she's got equally challenged with uh, with being a single mom, just by the tone and what was not mentioned in the post. Now, if you're married and you have a husband at home, ma'am, I'm sorry. I just this is the impression I got out of it. Um, couple kids, been prepping. No major shit hit the fan scenario, but monitor on the computer goes out, has to buy a new monitor. Uh, death of the family has to travel for a funeral, and there was one other thing that happened. I don't remember. I think it was a car repair that came up. So all three happen at the same time. Stuff happens in three, folks, I'm telling you. When you have two bad things happen, be paying attention for the third. So the, the, the three came down on this lady. All she did 
was decide I got to tighten my belt for a couple weeks, pull a couple hundred dollars extra money into the system uh, that doesn't go out, use it to get by through that two week period, and then I'll start to restock and resupply after that. So she didn't even really go into her preps. She just ate out of the pantry in the refrigerator without any fear because the preps were there. Did that for a couple weeks, put up an extra two hundred dollars toward all of these issues, didn't cover all of them, I'm sure, but it made the problems basically uh, sustainable and something you could get rid of and, and deal with. And uh, the kids basically didn't even know that anything had changed except for the fact they ran out of soda and she didn't buy more soda. Told them they needed to cut back on caffeine for a while. Then she would go back to the store and slowly repopulate the pantry and make sure that everything continues to go forward. Now, this is a perfect example of where a person that is a prepper, a survivalist, skates through a situation where many people, what you end up with, instead of pulling two dollars into the system, they go three or four or five hundred or more dollars into debt with credit card. Now you'd say, why would the person that doesn't have the preps have to put more than the two hundred dollars the person with preps did on the credit card? Why two hundred in saves this person and it takes five hundred out to save the other person? It's the mentality and the way they think and the way they react to a panic situation. Oh, I got a computer. I got to have a computer in the house. Somebody, oh, I, whatever on airfare, just got to do it because uh, you're, you're spending phony money, fake money. So since you're doing that, you tend to, uh, to spend more freely, especially in a crisis. So instead of going $500 into debt, this person went to zero debt. Walked through the situation. I'm sure losing somebody in the family, that was a tragedy, and that's something you can never be ready for. But you can be prepared for it. There's a difference between being ready and being prepared. And what we had here was somebody that was prepared, walked through the situation, read the thread. It's inspirational. It's a good thing to share maybe with some people that don't get it. Those people you're trying to say, look, you need to pay attention to this, and they're just like, you're crazy. Go hide in your bunker, buddy, or something like that. Show them this and let them uh, let them take a look at it and understand that it doesn't have to even be a hurricane or an earthquake or a fire. It can be something as simple as life. And being prepared for the big disasters make the little ones inconveniences instead of small disasters. Uh, number four, I got an email from someone. And they said, Jack, do you find it ironic that your show, your blog, your forum, everything that you do is about survivalism. Everything you talk about is about survivalism. But your political ideology is libertarianism, which is all about survival of the fittest. Are those in conflict? My, my initial response is, huh? What? Are you kidding? Did, 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 can you read your own question? And then, you know, saying, well, if somebody has a legitimate question, let's examine it and see how this plays out. First of all, absolutely not. Um, to say that would be like saying that uh, a guy that dedicates his entire life to training people in gyms and to training people cardiovascularly, and his whole message is don't eat fatty foods, you know, be healthy, take care of yourself. If you do these things and keep a healthy body, you're less likely to have cardiovascular disease, cancer, hardening, all these other diseases that come with obesity and not taking care of yourself. And my mission in life is to protect you by giving you the ammunition you need to stay out of the operating room. And then they say to that guy, well, are you for national health care so that anybody that needs a heart bypass can just get one for free? And he says, no. They say, are you in conflict? Of course he's not in conflict. What he's doing is empowering the individual and then saying, you know what, if you don't do these things, you've gotten the exact result you could expect. That doesn't mean we let you sit there and die, but you're going to pay the bill. 
You're going to get, with the liberty to abuse yourself, the responsibility to deal with the consequences of your actions. And that's what libertarianism is about. So, when I say, you know what, I think that you should store food, stay out of debt, etc., that doesn't mean that somebody's going to come and say, I got myself into $30,000 worth of credit card debt. I'm not sure how I did it. I need a bailout. No, you don't get a bailout. You had the liberty to go into that debt. I don't want to take that liberty away from you. But if you go into it, I expect you to get yourself out of it. And if you don't, then I expect you to deal with the consequences of doing that. And I don't say that, you know, preaching is like holier than now, because I was in $25,000 worth of credit card debt just a few years ago. And we paid it to zero. And we don't have any more credit card debt. We won't touch one again. And the reason I won't touch a credit card, and the reason when you go, but I use it for airline miles or or some other crap that you give me as your excuse for why you use a credit card, I go, bull crap. Keep playing with a rattlesnake. Sooner or later, it will bite you. And, and, and I'm, you know, firm on that. So that's the same way I am with survivalism. You say, well, you're a libertarian, you're for survival of the fittest. Uh, you know what? Libertarians are very philanthropic, uh, people. They are big on charity, donation, helping others. And to be fair, most conservatives are as well. Most conservatives donate a lot of money to the church. They donate a lot of money to charity. What I've seen when public records of our politicians have been released, the liberal politician, and I am not pro-Republican, I'm not pro-conservative, I'm just making a simple statement of reality here. The most liberal of politicians that want big government solutions to everything, they tend to donate the least amount of money. Okay, to charities. The people who want smaller government tend to donate larger amounts. Overall, I'm sure you can tell me, I know this libertarian, he won't give anybody anything. And I know this Democrat, she gives 80% of her income away. But the overall trend. Because if you see government as the solution, then why should you as an individual have to be the solution? So libertarians are not against charity. They're against forced charity. In other words, I'll give money. And I, if they would take away my income tax, I would probably donate close to as, I would probably donate more. Because even though I'm taxed as heavy as I am, I still donate. So if you gave me the money back, and I'm already donating on top of it, why wouldn't you think I'd continue to donate just as much if it was under my control? And that's what libertarianism is all about. Libertarian, there's actually a lot of people that call themselves libertarian socialists. And you say, how the hell could there be a libertarian socialist? A libertarian socialist says, I choose to live with a group of people that share everything. But I understand that that's my choice, and that's our choice, and we'll run our group the way that we choose to. But I don't expect anybody else to have to do that, and I want other people to have whatever option they want too, so that no one comes and takes away mine. That's libertarian socialism. So... No, the two things aren't in conflict, but the big thing I want you to take away from this is what I'm telling you to do every day is your solution. Storing food, staying out of debt, having alternative investments, having a plan, knowing what to do in a crisis. Right? That's not about survival of the fittest. That's about making yourself fit enough to survive. So let's go on to the next question from there. Um, 
this is a great question. I've got this from quite a few people. And, it, you know, I have this bug allocation up in Arkansas. And to me, it's more than a bug allocation. It's a vacation home. It's a second home. And it's also a dream. It's a place that I want to live. And if my wife would say, Jack, I've changed my mind. I'm ready to go right now instead of next year. I would pack my crap up, and I would be up there as quickly as possible. There would be a for sale sign on the place in Arlington. We'd take whatever we could get for it. We're, we have enough equity in it that even in today's market, we could get some money out of it and get out from underneath it, and I would be out of here. And so we've agreed to do that next year. And, you know, my wife has her reasons for wanting to be here another year. That's fine. We'll do it. But that's my dream. That's my goal. That's where I want to be. That is my retirement home, uh, even though I won't be retired when I get there. I want to live on that little piece of mountain property for the rest of my life and turn it into something really uh, beautiful and be there every day to give it my attention and shape it and design it. So the question is, well, when you do that, do you lose the advantage of two facilities, two places to go? Yes, I do. I absolutely lose an advantage when I sell my property here in Arlington and I go up to Arkansas. I also gain an advantage. I divest myself of the mortgage, the taxes, and the insurance, and the upkeep on this property. So what I do is I take a situation now where I have a fairly expensive property here to maintain, a very inexpensive property there to maintain, and I eliminate the expensive property. So that is an offsetting advantage. But I've lost the advantage. You're correct. Now, the next thing that... I guess we're going to do after we move there. So we probably won't do this immediately. We'll start running the same process that we did to get that property, putting away a, a slush fund, so to speak, saving up cash, creating a fund to purchase another second piece of property. In this instance, though, since we don't plan on living there permanently, it will be an even less expensive piece of property. Basically, what I'll be doing is looking for a piece of property within a couple hours instead of five hours, because I can get very, very remote in a couple hours uh, from where we're at. Up in the mountains, it'll basically be a deer lease for me. Uh, not really a deer lease, I guess a deer hunting property, a hunting property. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 30 acres. I'm not really worried about electricity on the property. Uh, I'll set up a, a mobile home that we can pull up there and, and use when we're there and take away when we're not there. Uh, or possibly leave there, depending on how secure the location actually can be. And uh, we'll use all alternative energy sources there. And if we needed to back out, we would have a place to go. Would it be as ideal as what we have now? No, but things would have to be pretty stinking bad for us to have to take that step backwards. So I've actually gotten to a point from having a second piece of property where it so comforts us. It's such an insurance policy. And because I know real estate long-term is a better investment than just about any place to put your money because they're not making any more dirt that I will always strive to have a second piece of property. I may go some periods of time where I sell one and wait to buy another, but I will always have two. And what we're probably going to do, because we have huge amounts of equity in the property that we're sitting on in Arkansas and very, very low expenses, is we'll probably crack down for about two years and before we buy our second piece of property again. Unless we find some real special opportunity, we'll completely pay off our house there. So we'll be able to go in, pay cash, and have no house payments, no land payments, but two pieces of property, because we've set up our life over the last 10 years to get there. So, yeah, I'll lose the advantage, but I have a plan for that, and that's the big thing is you can't have a plan for everything, but those things you can foresee and control have a plan for them.
Now, the next question we have is about safety deposit boxes. And basically somebody uh, contacted me and said, do you think safety deposit boxes are a good idea or a bad idea? And, and please don't just say good or bad. Please give us some rationale behind them. So uh, I think they are a good idea with, with, to, a, to a point. And they're also, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket so they can be a bad idea as well. Here's how I mean that. I think they're a great way to take and put some additional cash, maybe gold, silver, things like that, and make them accessible to yourself in a place that's highly secure, far more secure than your home, and uh, there's no, you know, no one tells the IRS what's in your security box, it's your own business, it's locked down, you control it, you know what's in there, and it's all tangible assets you can put your hands on, and it's an additional redundancy of security. What I mean by that, let's say you decide... You know what, I'm going to always have at least $5,000 of cash accessible outside of a bank account. I want 5K available or 1K, it doesn't matter what it is, whatever that number is for you. So if you take $5,000 and put it in a strong box in your house, and somebody does happen to burglarize your home and get away with your strong box, it's been lost. If you happen to be somewhere where you can't get to your house, the money doesn't do you any good there. Right, so if you had a bank somewhere in the area with a safety deposit box with half of the cash in that box, that gives you an additional place you can go without maybe having to go back to the home. Or if you have a theft, total loss, it's not a total loss because you've broken up your stuff. The other thing I think makes a lot of sense is, let's say you decide part of my plan for my bug out location, if you have a bug out location, a place you would go, even if it's a relative's home, is I want to make sure that I have I don't know, $2,000 in cash and some silver coins available to me there. Now, I would not put a relative in a position of being responsible for my money. So I wouldn't say, here's a little box with my money in it, keep it safe. Because if something happens, it's going to put the onus on them, and it really never should have been. And then the other side of that is, what are you going to do? If you have a bug allocation, bury it in a hole in the ground? I mean, you still have a risk of loss. So by taking some of that money or all of that money at the remote location, and I'd say some is a better idea, and cashing some of it somewhere else privately is probably another good idea, and putting it in a safety deposit box, if you bug out, you can make a quick stop by a bank and pick up your additional reserves. That doesn't mean you rely on them 100%, because you might show up there on a Saturday afternoon and not be able to get into that bank till a Monday, or a Tuesday if there happens to be a holiday. But I do think they're a good idea. I do think they make a hell of a lot of sense. I think they create a heck of a, of a piece of redundancy for people, and they really warrant your consideration. And they can be purchased for, you know, I think average safety deposit boxes and banks, depending on size, range from about 28 to $80 a year. So it's a very inexpensive way to make sure that you have some things accessible to you. And nobody inventories your safety deposit box. What goes in there is private. It's between you and the box. Even the bank doesn't know what goes in your box. So there's uh, some advantage there as well. The next question was kind of, you know, Bud, do you have a foil hat? He said, let's say the government wanted to round people up and put them in camps because they were God-loving people. Okay. Let's go on with the rest of the question. Uh, what about doing something like instead of having a bug out location with a paper trail where you could be tracked to, uh, bugging out and camping out basically in the deep, dark parts of the national forest system? You're going to hide a government land from the government. Okay. Now, 
the idea is not completely without merit as long as you already know from the beginning it's going to be a short-term solution. Uh, but if we were ever in this like total breakdown situation where people were rounding us up and putting us in the FEMA death camps, um, yeah, you're probably going to be pretty easy pickings in that type of situation uh, because you're not going to be the only one there. There's going to be lots of people there. And once groups form, it becomes a lot easier to infiltrate and, and capture them. So if your nightmare scenario ever comes, I, I don't know what other option you would have at that point other than to stand and fight. And that might be necessary in such a, a far-out uh, possibility. But for something more probable... I don't know, like, let's say a complete collapse of U.S. infrastructure and U.S. currency where the country goes completely and totally bankrupt for real and all the gas stops flowing and everything else running off to the National Forest. Probably not a good idea. Uh, you're not going to be the first person to think of it. It ranks up with, with I'm going to bug out to Walmart. And what I would encourage you to do is uh, get involved with a forum called Zombie Hunters, zombiehunters.org. And I know I have a forum, so me promoting another forum is a little weird, but I'm happy to, to send some traffic to those guys, too. I think they're a great source of information. And there's some threads that they have kind of sticky to the top of their boards on the thoughts about going to the National Forest or going to Walmart or Sam's Club. And people that have actually thought through the entire scenarios and realize how big a mistake they really are. And I don't have time to go through all that stuff. Maybe someday I'll do a show completely on the two big misconceptions. I'm going to go to the store or I'm going to go to the woods. Alright? But I'd suggest you read those. Now, why did I say the idea is not without merit? Well, it does have merit in a simple way. If you had a nice travel trailer and you lived in a city that was about to be hit by a hurricane, your travel trailer driven a couple hundred or several hundred miles away and paying $14 a day for a campsite at a state park or a national park and living in your travel trailer in comfort instead of a hotel at a greatly, you know, great savings when you don't have to worry about everybody else doing it too because most people are too, you know, unprepared for anything to even be doing that. Well, then it makes sense. So I think the travel trailer or camping gear off to the forest for a three or four day evac, it's a great drill. Uh, it'll help you out. Uh, it's probably better than staying at La Quinta for $159 a night and hoping that you know a year later FEMA is going to reimburse you for the check because you were inconvenienced and unprepared. Uh, so for things like that, I think it might make sense. Uh, long term, it may be a have to be. There's something that you've really got to do. Um, but uh, some people are so dumb. You can't help certain people, folks. I won't even explain this one. Just idiots. You try to let them in, they won't get in. You have to go past them. Anyway, um, so it may be okay for the, 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 the specific acute situation. Or if we got to a point, let's say... Oh, I don't know, six months into a total breakdown, where people have started to form kind of civilians' posses and put things back together, you may see a lot of people living like that uh, in groups that will protect each other and band together, but I think that might be a little bit overly optimistic. I think overall you better have another plan because I don't think that's really a good one.
And uh, just for the record, I don't think the government's ever going to round us up and put us in death camps because we believe in God. And I think if you really believe that, you need to focus a little bit more on reality and focus on practical preparations because I don't think that's the Big Brother plan. Because I don't think that plan makes any sense because what motivates these people is money. And you don't make money by putting Christians in death camps. You make money by giving Christians a credit card and convincing them it's a good idea to get into debt. And milking them for everything that they have and making them slaves for their entire life to money when they're supposed to be serving their God. That's how you make money off Christians. You don't make money off Christians by having them walk the red line and get on the death train. That just doesn't make any sense. And I really challenge people that are of that belief to start thinking a little bit more about the way history has played out up till now. And please leave Nazi Germany out of it because that little individual happened to have syphilis eating his brain away. Alright? So uh, let's go on to the next question. Uh, the next question was, again, really more of a statement, and it was basically, Jack, you should have mentioned shipping containers when you did your show on bug-out locations as a housing option. I'm buying a shipping container, and it's only costing me X dollars, and it's secure, and they'll deliver it, and they'll put it there, and it's lockable, and it's uh, pretty much a bulletproof uh, piece of housing. Shipping containers are not without merit. Um... I do think that people that actually haven't done it yet or fully researched what it's going to take don't realize how expensive it can be to build yourself even a relatively small house out of a shipping container, though. A shipping container is a box. And placed in the sun, it's a box that will become very, very hot inside. So the very first thing that you have to do is insulate it. Now, there's, there's three ways I can think of to insulate it. Two of them are not very practical. One is to go inside it, build a frame on the inside, stack that with insulation, and put drywall up like it's a house. And the reason I don't think that's practical for a, you know, you're not... You're not welding three of them together and making a big house or whatever. You've only got a certain amount of width to begin with. If you put in six inches of insulation on both sides of this thing, including the drywall, we've lost a foot of that width. So you've already reduced it by, you know, with a lot of these things, uh, you know, they're eight feet wide. So you've, you've reduced it by one-eighth of its total surface area simply by insulating it. So I think there's a, there's a big loss there if you insulate it that way. Plus, you've used a lot of building material that you could have used to just friggin' build a house, honestly, in the first place, because you could have definitely bought siding for that framework for the outside with the cost of the container. Next, you could have built um, a frame around the outside of the house and sided it and put your insulation on the outside. Then you don't really need the shipping container unless you want it for its added security as far as its durability. If you, if you, you know, weld it down and basically use concrete welding techniques to weld it down to a concrete base, it'll probably, you know, a hurricane or a tornado or something could hit and pull everything off the outside of it and your structure will still be there and you'd probably be safe inside. So it has that advantage. I guess to a degree it is somewhat bulletproof for a hardened location. Uh, you're probably going to cut windows in it though, so that mitigates that 
that a little bit. Um, so I think there's some advantages there, but I think the big thing people miss is, well, if you're going to go in there and actually make it livable, you're going to put in plumbing, you're going to put in heating and cooling, if you're going to put in the, you know, a, a place to cook, all of these other things, um, the expense is actually higher than most people plan for. The third way to insulate these things in the right way, and it is a good method, and it'll help a lot, but you better budget for it, is there's a special spray coating that basically gives these things like an R22 or an R24 rating, which is as good as most houses built in a cookie-cutter fashion. We build them in suburbia. And all they do is spray this stuff on, but it's fairly expensive. Nothing wrong with it. Just make sure you budget for that. And getting a fairly large one of these things delivered, from my best estimates, if, and I've just looked at it to see what it would cost me, would cost me about eight to ten thousand dollars. And I think if you were getting one delivered somewhere in Dallas, for instance, uh, where there'd be less distance to bring it to you than to my remote location, uh, might, you might do it for six or seven. And my point is, for that same amount of money, you could buy a damn nice used travel trailer. And as a travel trailer is resistant to the storms, the wind, the rain, uh, damage, no. But it's a fully contained system. You have a shower. You have plumbing that you only need to hook up to a source of water. You have sewage that you only need to either you know find a grade dump location or put in a septic system and, and tie it into. Um, it's fully fully livable from day one. You have furniture, you have bedding, and you have mobility. So I think for most people, the travel trailer option is probably a better one for that type of thing. Now, if you want a shipping container, I'm not saying it's not a good thing. There is a, a hell of a lot of robustness and, and uh, structural integrity in those things. They do offer a heck of a thing to use as a storm shelter. And if you plan on eventually building a full-type living facility there and turning it into an outbuilding, boy, what a bulletproof outbuilding. And what a great place to shelter in a storm. So I think there's some advantages there. Just make sure you don't think they're this super low-cost option, because by the time you put one of those things in and turn it into something that you could really live in, you're looking at $20,000. And uh, now if you do everything yourself, you have the time, maybe you can do it for less. But, I mean, just pricing out all the components it would take to do it, that's what I came up with. And you can buy a pretty nice, completely tricked-out little mini-cabin uh, for $20,000. So it might be a hell of a lot more livable and might make the property, if you ever chose to sell it, a hell of a lot better of investment. So, again, I'm not saying one's good, one's bad. I'm just saying weigh all those options before, in your mind, you decide that a shipping container is the way to go and you end up with a $7,000 metal box baking in the sun and now you're not really sure what you're going to do with it. Just just think it in advance before you do that. Last question. Um, what do I think about holding foreign currency and specifically holding currency in foreign banks uh, so that you protect yourself against the falling dollar uh, in an economic collapse? I think there's merit there. And uh, before Australia got itself into some real problems, and I had enough of an ROI to pull my money out, I had quite a bit of money sitting in Australia and Australian bonds uh, on the advice of a good friend. And that was one method. Uh, you don't necessarily have to put your money in an Australian bank. You go into another country and buy their foreign bonds, you've effectively done the same thing. Now, you have locked your money up for a term, but you can come out early without much of a penalty. You are subject to the fluctuations of currency exchange. In other words, if you went in and bought... Um, 
Australian bonds on the Australian dollar. And then the Australian dollar, and they, let's say you get a good interest rate, 7% guaranteed, 6% guaranteed on your money in Australia. But if the, the Australian dollar during, let's say, your two-year bond term falls by 12% against the dollar, you end up losing 6%. Okay? So you can lose money by holding a foreign currency. You can lose money by holding any anything anywhere in the world. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just to be you know be aware of that. Don't go find a great uh, bond payment and think that that's a great place to put your money without understanding the currency laws on the currency exchange. You also, in many countries, can open up a bank account as a foreigner and hold money in their bank in their currency. All right. I think those make sense because you can then access that currency from other places in the world. Understand that this tactic is more about, well, what if one day you have to flee this country? This country so goes into disarray that you have to leave it. So it's a a last out option when you do that. So the country you're holding the money in, if you're smart, would probably be the country that you would go to in that scenario, assuming that you could get there and had a way to get there when we were in such a bad situation. The problem is you've now decided, well, I'm going to France. I'm going to Germany. I'm going to Australia. I'm going to Fiji. You're going wherever. Well, what if you can't get there? This is why I am a big fan of 10% of your retirement and savings going in to gold or silver. Now, let me be clear. It's not 10% of your income. If you're saving $1,000 a month, it's 100 into metals. If you're saving $100 a month, it's 10 into metals. It's a couple silver quarters, for God's sakes. But having building up some level of gold or silver, or gold and silver, because it gives you a flexibility that doesn't exist with any other option. If I put my money into the Bank of Zurich, Switzerland, then i got to get to Switzerland to make most efficient use of the, 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 that Swiss money. Now, I can go to Australia and request a wired transfer into Australia and deal with the intergovernment crap that's there. Um, I can even set something up in advance to make that more possible. Now I can go to either place, but if Switzerland takes a dump at the same time the United States takes a dump, and so does Australia, now where do I go? If I have a reasonably small amount, I mean physical size of gold on my possession, I can go anywhere in the world that's stable and convert that gold into hard currency immediately. It's liquid. And that's the thing to understand about gold investing for survivalism. It's not so much because you're going to go out and trade a gold bar on the street in a barter economy. If you ever have to immediately extricate yourself from somewhere, wherever you go, in the country or outside of the country, that gold can be liquidated to a currency that's valid where you are in seconds. No place, no bank in the world, you know, won't take gold in exchange for currency. And, and, and the banks that take gold for currency. I mean, you can't go down to, you know, Arlington National Bank and hand them, you know, a bar of gold. But you can go to central bank locations in any place in the world and liquidate gold. You can go to pawn shops anywhere in the United States and liquidate gold. Gold is liquid and immediately transferable into a currency no matter where you go. You can take a small amount of it with you, relatively easy, large cash value. That's the value of gold. And when I started doing this show, and I'll see if I can find it, somebody posted a link to an article about a Vietnamese man who was in South Vietnam before the fall. And he had a lot of money. 
And he took some portion of that money and he converted it to gold bars. And when he left South Vietnam, as, the, as we were pulling out, he took his money and he took his gold. And he took, you know, whatever the equivalency of a South Vietnamese dollar in cash. By the time he got to the United States, that South Vietnamese money was absolutely, positively worthless. It wasn't worth the paper that it was printed on. But he took his gold and he sold it for, I think it was like $12,000 worth of gold that he had, U.S. And this was, you know, 1975-ish. So it was a significant amount of money. Even today, 12000 is a good amount of money to get a start with. But the guy that wrote the article was the guy that bought his gold. And he said he was so happy that he was able to buy this man's gold and give him a start in this country because the man had been intelligent and thought about it. When you start talking about investing in metals, it goes beyond barter economy. It goes to that point of if no matter where I go in the world, this is worth currency in that location. So that pretty wraps up pretty much wraps up today's show. A little stumble here and there, some interesting traffic things going on today. Hopefully it was a great show. And uh, keep sending me these questions, folks. I would like more questions. These are great shows. They're easy to go through. It keeps me from being too redundant. Again, you want to send me a question, put question for Jack in the subject, send it to Jack at the survival podcast.com again jack at the survival podcast.com or you can go to the blog the survival podcast.com use my contact form to get in touch with me as well this has been jack spirico with another edition of the survival podcast helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't you can scream and you can holler it really doesn't matter Get spent